The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is the leading solar inverter supplier by volume in the world. It's uh, now leading in the Americas as well, with more than 3 gigawatts shipped in the last two years. SunGrow inverters are the backbone of some of the most innovative projects in the world, from floating PV to big projects for tech companies. Find out more about their innovations in both solar and storage at sungrowpower.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. I am a contributing editor at GTM and your host. Welcome to the show. This week, is big tech fueling the climate disinformation war? As we continue to reckon with the dark side of Silicon Valley's tech giants, there's more scrutiny into how these companies are assisting climate denial and obfuscation and building the digital backbone of industries that are wrecking the planet. How much criticism do they deserve? Where does their culpability lie? It's a murky subject. Then Trump makes it official. America is leaving the Paris Climate Agreement with U.S. global leadership in shambles. Who's going to fill the gap? And how could elections change things? Finally, California's wildfire crisis is stoking the state's distributed generation market. We'll look at the business impacts. Jigger, you're out in California this week, an early morning recording session out there in San Francisco. Good morning. How's everything going? It's good. It's good. It's um it was a it was a nice flight and the embassy suites is treating me well. <laughs> How do do things feel like post wildfire chaos? Uh it I think it still feels pretty uncertain, right? I mean, in general, there's a cloud now hanging over people in terms of, you know, PG&E saying it could take 10 years to fix this problem. And so people are trying to make a decision about whether they buy a backup generator or move to another place or other things. Like it's like, I don't think folks have forgotten about it. Oh, certainly not. And that is part of the discussion at the end of the show. We're going to talk about uh, now that people are more frightened, more aware of the situation, uh, what that means for sales of generators and batteries and solar systems with batteries and the whole range of solutions that are out there. Out. Here on the East Coast, down in Washington, D.C., is Catherine Hamilton. Catherine, hello. It is cold as the dickens here. I uh, I take my dog for a walk every morning, and she's not the kind of dog that wears clothing, but this morning I put a little coat on her. <laughs> Are you going to be watching impeachment hearings this week? I would love to. Uh, I have a day job, so <laughs> I will be doing that. And I, ha- I have a bunch of meetings, but I'm going to try to catch them when I can because it's going to be really interesting uh, political theater. Catherine is the chair of 38 North Solutions. Okay, the first topic this week encompasses a lot of different stories. So I want to try to break it down into a few components. Firstly, there's this debate going on over political speech on Facebook and Twitter, and energy climate is playing into it. So we're going to dig in a bit there. Secondly, companies like Google and Facebook are getting called out once again for their support of groups that promote the worst kind of climate denial and disinformation. These groups take a lot of other stances that tech companies directly support. So how much do these companies need to consider climate against those other issues? A lot of employees within those companies are calling them out, and so it's kind of putting them in an uncomfortable situation. Finally, Amazon, Google, and Microsoft are basically automating the climate crisis. There's been some great reporting on this, which we'll discuss. How should we think about their role and culpability? 
So first to the political ads. In the last couple of weeks, there's been this split between Facebook and Twitter. Facebook says it will give any kind of political advertising free reign. Twitter says it's just going to ban political ads entirely. Both decisions have consequences and speak to just how powerful these companies are. So Facebook is letting political ads from campaigns loose on its platform without any fact-checking, which Zuckerberg announced a couple weeks ago. It got a lot of pushback. Uh, this company, this comes as a new study from Avaz showed that impressions for fake news are ramping up on Facebook into the election season, circulating more widely than any other type of credible news content. So we're going to talk about that in a minute. But first, Twitter took the opposite stance, saying it would just ban all political ads it would allow some issue ads that don't directly target politicians or legislation, however. And that's causing a very curious climate-related consequence. Emily Atkin, a contributor with The New Republic and author of this great climate newsletter called Heated, dug into those ads after the policy was announced. And she found that ads taken out by pro-climate action groups were getting banned, were likely to get banned, Well, ads from large fossil fuel companies defending themselves against, say, lawsuits or promoting greenwashing will get to stay on the platform. Elizabeth Warren weighed in. Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey said he'd consider the problem as long as, you know, as they work through the rules later this month. So um, what how do we define issue ads? Uh, What could be the disadvantage for climate messaging? That's a big question that people are asking right now. And certainly when Elizabeth Warren thrust herself into the debate, it, it nationalized this conversation. So, Jigger, thoughts on Twitter's decision here, at least for the time being. There are a few Exxon ads floating around that directly respond to, like, allegations from attorneys general and also journalistic investigations about whether or not the company hid what they knew about climate change. How should we be thinking about these kinds of ads in terms of political speech within Twitter's new boundaries? Yeah, I, you know, in general, I don't think restricting speech is a good idea. I mean, I I don't love what the social media companies have done to public discourse. But at the end of the day, I feel like the First Amendment is still the First Amendment and people should be able to not have restricted speech. So I think that like, and so then the question really becomes, how do you create a more level playing field? And that's where I think Twitter probably got it wrong, right? Because it sounds like Exxon has figured out how to get around Twitter's most recent decision where a lot of other, you know, climate advocates can't get around it because by definition, if they're a nonprofit, they're engaging in political speech. Yeah, but I think we also need to kind of step up our game here. So Exxon's been doing this forever. They're really good at this. They just are using Twitter and Facebook now as new media, but they have been doing the same thing for a long time and couching it in, you know, these are the facts, this is the real story, this is truly what's happening. And I think, you know, they are willing to be completely disingenuous and lie about it. And I think part part of our our issue as, as scientists or climate activists is that we're so interested in just being careful about telling the truth. And in some ways, we have to like, take some lessons from their tactics. That's right, Catherine. Uh, Exxon has been doing this for a long time. And this feels like a modern variation of issue advertising that they have been doing for years. They are trying to convince the public of something. Now, it it seems kind of clear cut to me that, you know, Exxon is commenting on politics and politicians. It's commenting on investigations. It's spreading a quasi conspiracy theory about a cadre of liberal funders and politicians and journalists who are out to get the company. That to me feels like political speech. Uh, That's a problem. Well, and when it was on the other side, 
everybody was cheering it on, right? Remember when Twitter and Facebook were used to take down governments in Egypt and Tunisia, and frankly, in Colombia and other places around the world, everyone was like, oh, this is amazing. Now that Facebook is being used to promote genocide in Myanmar and other places, people are like, oh, wait a second, maybe it wasn't amazing. I remember the State Department had like a head of social media at the State Department under Hillary Clinton's reign as Secretary of State, um, saying like, wow, we need to really understand what social media is going to do. But most of what they were thinking about was it was going to be a positive force for social change. Well, absolutely. And so we all fell in love with this techno-libertarian view of the world until it completely fell apart. And we understood the dangers of widespread free speech on these platforms without any sort of regulation whatsoever. I don't know what that regulation looks like. It makes me kind of nauseous. And clearly when Twitter steps in and issues some kind of regulation, you have very clear cases where people are getting around it and it causes an imbalance in the type of political speech that's allowed on the platform. So I don't have an answer. Both sides make me nauseous at this point and kind of worried about uh, the the vibrancy of speech on these platforms. Yeah. And the regulation you're talking about is self-regulation. What that is, is they are setting their own rules for what they want to do. And Twitter and Facebook are doing it in different ways, but they're both sort of trying to self-police and they're inconsistent, as we can see. A couple of years ago, I was at the TomTom Festival and, you know, was asked on stage what should be done about Facebook at the time. And, you know, I said, like, it needs to be regulated like a utility company, right? I mean, it doesn't, it, like, to me, the thing is, is that this is not new, right? I mean, people were able to publish, you know, any old article they wanted to on, you know, in newspapers in the 1700s or the 1800s, right? And then people were able to do whatever they wanted to do on the airwaves in terms of, uh, you know, te- television. And, you know, eventually the government just had to regulate folks and say, here's a set of rules by which to regulate these uh, these utility companies. And, you know, I think that the FCC needs to step in and regulate them, just like we regulate everything else. So I talked with Reed Hunt, who was the former Federal Communications Commission chair under Bill Clinton during 1996 uh, Telecoms Act. And what he said was, look, the TV and radio broadcasting is under a completely different set of First Amendment regulations because they're using public property to broadcast. There is a part of this 1996 act, and it's the Communications Decency Act, and it's Section 230, which is really important to why Twitter and Facebook are able to do what they can, because Section 230 protects web services and social networks which is includes Facebook, Twitter, but also blogs from being held legally responsible for hosting or facilitating any online speech. They completely can do anything they want to do. So in order to regulate them, you have to change this U.S. Code 230 from the Communications Decency Act to put them under it, too. But right now, they the only thing we have with them is self-policing. We cannot regulate them as the law stands. So, Catherine... To the laws, there's this law that applies to, uh, you know, companies that are advertising, truth in advertising laws. Those don't apply to political speech or to these social media platforms. So, like, what in theory could hold politicians accountable 
if they're lying on these platforms, like from a regulatory perspective? Yeah. So as I said, you would have to change that Section 230 in some way to be able to have a legal recourse. But of course, these platforms can also self-regulate. So what Facebook has tried to do, and I listened to a fascinating interview with Sheryl Sandberg on a podcast that Katie Couric hosts called Next Question. And Katie Couric does not pull any punches with her questions. Um, Although Sheryl Sandberg is so much smoother than Mark Zuckerberg. Mark Zuckerberg is just awkward in every possible way. Um, but, but he's the head of a social media company. Yeah, but she has an answer to everything. Um, and so what she's saying is, look, we have 35,000 moderators that are reviewing all of the content. Plus, they're just algorithms catch oh, millions of fake pages and fake accounts every single day. So they took down in three months, like 2.2 billion fake accounts. Um, They shut down 50 different, you know, state campaigns. And by state, I mean, other country nation campaigns that are we're trying to interfere with our elections. They've tried to say, you know, we are going to take down hate speech, we're going to take down anything that's voter suppression, we're going to um, fact check. And I asked my husband, because I'm not on Facebook. And he said, he was following somebody and there was like a, a Part of the posting was in gray and it said this posting was found to potentially not be true. And he didn't know what that meant. He thought maybe his account had been hacked or something. So it's a little unclear how they're doing it. Um, but but by doing this, there's some still some inconsistencies. So people who are trying to work on, you know, Voter registration could also be blocked, not just voter suppression. It's just that it's inconsistent. And part of this is holding them to account on their consistency. Yeah. And uh, Catherine Hayhoe, who's a climate scientist out of Texas Tech, very well-known evangelical climate scientist, had a film series on climate change that they would promote uh, using Twitter's, or excuse me, Facebook's echo chamber. They could promote the, the video to a wide range of um, of of users, they got they 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 got banned from that practice because Facebook determined that climate change and clean energy were political issues, and they were no longer going to be able to use their promotion tools in the same way that other issues are. It's impossible to understand how what what standards these companies are using. And so although there's diff- a difference in policy here between whether Facebook allows ads, fit political ads, and whether Twitter bans them, ultimately the outcome is the same in that climate and clean energy are deemed political issues exclusively and are not getting proper due on the platforms. Now, of course, there's political ways of approaching them, and many of the groups have a political bent to their messaging, but it seems like there's a blanket problem here for those issues. And there's no judicial review. So if you don't like their decision, you can't really appeal it. So Facebook does say that they're putting together these content advisors that will review cases like this. There are only going to be 40 of them, so I do not know how they're going to be able to look at everything that's out there that has to be reviewed. And this isn't the 35,000 people who are reviewing ads and content, things like that. These are those who have to kind of adjudicate these case-by-case examples. Um, So they're looking to how they can do it. I'm absolutely sure it's not going to be a perfect process. No, it's not. It's not working at all. I mean, this new research from Avaz shows that there's 
more fake news getting traction than real news on the platform. They have not been able to control it. Yes, they've been able to stick their finger in a bunch of holes in the dike. Uh, absolutely, are, there, are they working harder than they did during, the, during 2015 and in the lead up to the 2016 election? Of course they are because their reputation depends on it. But their, their self-regulation is not fully working and there's so much crap that is still on the platform that is going viral. These companies are built on emotional reactions. They have one button that they push and they know that emotional reaction gets more clicks and likes and retweets and that is their business model it's how they shovel people to advertisers you know i don't use facebook that often anymore i've had an account for a long time but i recently as research before this episode for the last week or so have been using the platform and also instagram constantly and i've been clicking on ads and i've been clicking on you know um user profiles. And what I did was I started clicking on, you know, in theory, Facebook knows a lot about me, right? Well, then I started clicking on uh, stuff related to, you know, people who I grew up with who were really conservative, who are Trump voters. And I just, I wasn't interacting with their stuff at all. I was just looking at their profiles, looking at some of their, their uh, postings. And all of a sudden, all I started getting was conservative like memes and shit shoveled my way. And it was like, okay, first of all, the platform doesn't really know me. <laughs> and second of all, like you do one thing and they just like glom onto it. And they're like, you want more of this. Um, same thing when you press an ad. I have an ad, you know, I, I was interested in one ad on Instagram related to shoes. All of a sudden, all they shovel my way is shoe ads. Recently, I looked up like a meal plan uh, and all I'm getting is just like ads for meal plans. And so these companies are, they claim to have these sophisticated algorithms, but they're just built on emotional engagement and throwing things your way that you're interacting with in real time. And it's a really negative consequence for, say, climate denial, for our continued echo chambers that foster this kind of disinformation. It's a real problem. And they're not doing enough about it. They're, I, I think they're doing a terrible, terrible job. Well, it's the opposite, right? I mean, they because engagement is what fuels them. If you look at the top 100 shared stories on Facebook, number one was uh, the one where, you know, it accused Donald Trump's dad of being part of the KKK, which is false. Um, but the but stories two through 99 were all right wing propaganda um, uh, news stories. Right. And so the reason why Zuckerberg has been hosting these dinners with right wing, you know, folks is because he gets the fact that they use his platform better and engage users more than the left does. Like, and so he's like, well, you know, like I get paid for engagement and selling advertisement to people who are engaged. So therefore, like, I want more engagement, right? And I don't really care whether it's positive, negative. I don't have any responsibilities for the planet. And I think that's true about all the tech companies, right? I mean, that's the part that I find so uh, infuriating is when people sort of try to ascribe values to companies, it literally doesn't make any sense. Remember recently the, there was that business roundtable that said that they're going to care more about everybody, not just uh, shareholders. And then Apple just like took down an app in the app store because the Chinese government said, you know, you can't be helping people in Hong Kong. Like in general, I would say every one of these tech companies are saying, no, we're here to make money. Right. And we really don't care what happens to society or other things. So let's go to Facebook really quickly. Shortly after the decision to not do anything about political ads, Zuckerberg was on Capitol Hill 
where lawmakers grilled him about all kinds of subjects related to speech, even though he was actually there to talk about his cryptocurrency plan, which is falling apart. It resulted in this really interesting exchange with Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Let's listen to it. Could I run ads targeting Republicans in primaries saying that they voted for the Green New Deal? Sorry, can you repeat that? Would I be able to run advertisements on Facebook targeting Republicans in primaries saying that they voted for the Green New Deal? I mean, if you're not fact-checking political advertisements, I'm just trying to understand the the bounds here. What's fair game? I, uh, I don't know the answer to that off the top of my head. I think So you don't know if I'll be able to do that? I think um, Do you see a potential problem here with a complete lack of fact-checking on political advertisements? Well, Congresswoman, I think lying is bad. And I think if you were to run an ad that had a lie, that would be bad. That's different from it being, uh, from it, from the, for in our position, the right thing to do to prevent uh, your constituents or people in an election from seeing that you had lied. Um, so we can, so you won't take down lies or you will take down lies? I think it's just a pretty simple yes or no. Congresswoman, uh, in. I'm not talking about spin, I'm talking about actual in, yes, disinformation. Yes, in, in a democracy, okay. I believe that people should be able to see for themselves what politicians that they may or may not vote for so are you saying won't take judge them their down. character for themselves. So you won't take, you may flag that it's wrong, but you won't take it down. That prompted a liberal PAC to take out an ad on Facebook that falsely showed Republican Senator Lindsey Graham fawning over the Green New Deal. And the ad stayed up for a day before getting taken down. It's actually still on Facebook. It just can't be promoted. Um, And Facebook said that the ad was taken down because it came from a political action committee, not a politician. So in theory, a politician, so AOC herself, could put up the same ad and it would make the rounds without penalty, in perpetuity basically. Um, what does this tell us about Facebook's policy? I mean, it's a, it's, it, we've already talked about the dangers of how they're regulating speech, but that feels to me, it's kind of a funny example, but it also feels to me like it just blatantly shows how terrible Facebook's policy is. Well, the other thing it shows is that, you know, folks who have no shame can use the platform with impunity and the folks who have shame can't. Right. So, I mean, AOC would never put on an ad that that with her name, with her money, saying that Lindsey Graham supported the New Deal, Green New Deal. She just wouldn't do it. But Lindsey Graham, I'm sure, would put up an ad saying that, you know, he talked to the Ukrainian president himself and nothing went wrong. Right. Because he doesn't care. Right. I mean, this is the thing is like we're in a world right now where where. Folks are lying on television. Forget about Facebook. I mean, folks are lying in in public on television about all sorts of things. And, you know, like it's people get away with it. I mean, hell, James Inhofe took a snowball into the Senate and said, you know, like, look, this proves global warming is not real. I mean, that that just doesn't. And he didn't get shamed for it. People kind of laughed. So then this brings us to the bigger question about what kind of fact checking these platforms should be doing if they should be doing it. Uh, As you mentioned, Catherine, Facebook has rolled out some of these features that that indicate that something might not be coming from a credible news source. I have seen them in the wild. But I'll tell you what, when people post individual postings like to my feed, you know, it's it's someone there's this uh, story that has been making the rounds about global cooling again. And a bunch of people from that I grew up with from high school have been posting it. And there's no fact checking around that from individual posters. Um, so the question is, 
you know, that's that's hard to regulate if like an individual is posting something. But when it comes to publishers and so forth that are putting out like terrible ads or even political candidates, what is how do how does Facebook think about doing this? It, 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 these these companies claim that they're platforms, right? Their first line of defense is we don't. Our job is to get the information out there and to let people decide. We are not publishers. We are platforms, and that is clearly falling apart. Facebook has, you know, Facebook, Google, and Twitter have sucked up like eighty-five percent of the ad revenue that once went to newspapers. You know, it shifted from things like Craigslist, which was the f- the first vacuum that sucked up ad revenue from newspapers, and now it's these social media companies, and uh, their platforms are built to get engagement and to push really terrible news, which is, according to this recent report, getting still getting more traction than regular news. So. If these companies are not platforms and they are publishers, what role should they have in fact-checking stuff, which is really important for things like climate denial, which can spread very quickly as a negative or outrageous news story? So do either of you have any thoughts on the media side of this or the journalism side of this? Should they be fact-checking in a way that puts them closer to a traditional newspaper or, or media outlet? So there are kind of two issues. As you were you were citing different kinds of ads, I was thinking about the only, I mean, I'm on Twitter, but I'm also on Instagram. So I, because I'm not on Facebook, I can then follow my sister and my friends on Instagram. And Instagram feeds me a pretty steady supply of things that I can purchase, many of which I do. And, you know, they know what I like. And sometimes they go overboard with the warm socks. But, you know, um, that's what they know about me. But I don't get issue ads. You know, like I don't get things about topic areas because that's not how I engage in the platform. So there's kind of two different things. One is like people who are trying to sell something Social media is a great place to go. I think it's super effective at getting people to click and purchase. Um, but the same, of course, could be true on the issue campaign side. And I think I think we just need to call for transparency to find out what their rules are. Because I don't think we even know what they are. You know, they'll make these broad statements about, like, we don't want hate speech or voter suppression. But then what does that actually mean? What kinds of things are they pulling down? So I I would call for a lot more transparency on that front. Well, this is why I like the journalistic example more than the Supreme Court example. Facebook is putting together this Supreme Court that will make key decisions. But if you want to be transparent, media outlets, at least mainstream ones like the New York Times or major newspapers are pretty transparent about the editorial decisions they make. When they make a bad decision, they have an ombudsman who goes out and solicits feedback from the public and then makes a determination about whether that was the correct decision, editorial decision, and then it communicates that. And it's a pretty good system. It works really well. It creates a sense of trust. And that's the journalistic version of what you do. And it's more of a real-time version, whereas the Supreme Court is this kind of stodgy, um, like opaque body that makes decisions a little bit more slowly and deliberately. Sure, Facebook might need that, but if we're talking about internal regulation, something more public facing and transparent, like an ombudsman, is going to be really important, and they're going to need to communicate a little bit better. But I, I think I agree that there's going to be some combination of better self regulation and some kind of government regulation. That is pretty clear. Okay, so that part of the conversation went on longer than I thought. So let me just get to this second part of the conversation. Um, 
There's new reporting in The Guardian about how Google and Facebook are still backing groups like the Competitive Enterprise Institute, the State Policy Network, Americans for Tax Reform, and others, which are these leading libertarian groups that pretty clearly and have for a long time spread messages about how CO2 is good for the planet, that climate science is a hoax, or that any price on carbon would be a threat to the economy. We've known about these affiliations for a long time. Google's affiliation with these groups, I think, was reported on like back in 2011, but they've continued. And now employees at Google and Amazon and even Microsoft have all raised public concerns about these affiliations. So these companies are obviously hedging politically. These are libertarian groups that have been strong defenders of lax regulations that benefit the tech tech companies. But But do these companies have any obligation to consider the climate denial espoused by these groups, which can be really bad? Catherine, what do you think? What's their responsibility to kind of weigh climate against all these other issues that they they benefit from? So the only reason they should consider climate above any other reason is if their shareholders and employees force them to and their and their customers force them to. So the Google employees, a bunch of Google employees sent a letter that said, you know, we want zero emissions by 2030, zero contracts to enable fossil fuels and zero collaboration with all these entities that enable oppression of refugees and frontline communities. So they they were very clear about their demands. And I think when shareholders demand that as well, that that will cause them to change. I mean, companies give money to all kinds of groups and all kinds of conferences. And because one one person at a conference is talking about something crazy, uh, you know, it's hard to hold a company accountable for the entire content of the conference or the entire thrust of the conference, which may be much more libertarian and anti-regulation, which would help the business. So, you know, I think it's it's really hard. It's hard for us as hard for me as a policy person to try to hold them accountable. I think it's much more on their customers, their employees, and their shareholders to do so. So, Jigger, is climate any different here? Obviously, companies all the time work with groups that are not consistent with every issue that a certain company cares about. But if they're directionally supportive of the policies that are going to benefit the company, of course they're going to work with a lobbying firm or an association or a think tank. Is climate any different, though? Like, should we be holding these companies to a different standard because of the severity of climate change? Or, you know, is it just like any other issue? If from this perspective, it's like any other issue. This is a nothing burger story, right? You're talking about... What do you mean from this perspective? What do you mean exactly? Google's core business is to own your information, right? Nothing else. They really don't care about anything else, right? So to the extent that their servers are powered by renewable energy, great. To the extent that they actually figure out a way to help autonomous vehicles reduce carbon emissions, fantastic, right? But they're also secretly trying to like you know, put together a search engine that that filters uh, search results for China, right? That to me is part of their core business. And that to me is something their employees should rise up against and say, not in my house, right? But in terms of like climate change and whether there's somebody else on a panel somewhere, I mean, hell, how many times have I sponsored a conference and Shell and BP and Equinor were over there telling everybody how natural gas was going to save the world? Right. I mean, there's lots of places where you go somewhere because the right audience members are there. You sponsor the conference. You actually want to influence those audience members. And some of the other people on stage are saying things that you don't necessarily agree with. You don't then say, well, I'm not going to talk to that audience. So on one side of this, you've got like 
pretty stalwart advocates, people like Bill McKibben or Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who have called these companies out. Sheldon Whitehouse said, you don't get a pass on it, right? You just don't get a pass. Bill McKibben, who started you know, 350 and the do the math movement and really was at the forefront of demonizing fossil fuel companies said that this is functional greenwashing. So on their end of the spectrum, they're saying, sorry, this, you know, I don't care if they've got other issues that you care about. This is the issue of our time. Like you just don't get a pass anymore. Um, And I wonder at what point that argument starts gaining traction. Like, is it 10 years from now? I mean, I think most people have your reaction jigger, right? Like even if they they know that these companies shouldn't be supporting groups with that messaging. They understand these murky relationships. But is there a moment when that that doesn't cut it anymore? It feels to me like we're going to reach that point. Yeah. How far do you take this, though? Right. I mean, because of index funds and the fact that everybody in their in the country actually just invests in a 401k with their like five choices, um, more money is going to coal today than was going into coal five years ago because coal just has an allocation. And so now BlackRock is in trouble for like having this allocation. And it's all because of automated investing, et cetera. So BlackRock is now a villain, right? And then you go to um, the divestment movement, right? And because of the divestment movement, the return on investment for mining and fossil fuels has never been higher. So a lot of the billionaires that you love who are like promoting climate change solutions are fully invested in mining and coal and oil um, mining private equity investments, right? That's how Bill Gates gives away $5 billion a year and still seems to get $10 billion of additional wealth every year, right? And so, so like on the one hand, their automated robo-investors are, you know, like sort of investing in the worst stuff in the world to be able to make a higher return. And on the other hand, they're like giving $500 million to to end coal, right? And so I just think that like, there's a lot of outrage to go around. And if we all want to be outraged all day, that's great. But I just think the notion that like, that I'm going to sit around and just be in a constant state of outrage. Yeah, I choose not to live my life that way. Yeah, and I think we can we can still call them out for greenwashing. We need to be honest about that. Um, but yeah, I, I tend to agree with Jigger on this one. So listeners are going to hear an edited version of this conversation that moves forward, but we've been spending a lot of time on this topic. We need to get moving. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on this last piece of it, which is that now people are calling out these companies, you know, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, for inking billions of dollars in contracts with, you know, for automation, for cloud services, for machine learning to the world's biggest oil companies to help them drill for more oil. We did have this conversation maybe a few months back. Um, and, and I guess, Jigger, my question is, are you applying the same standards, right? This is, uh, you were skeptical yeah. of the framing last time. Essentially, what you just outlined there, do you have the same reaction to these companies' relationships with uh, fossil fuel extraction companies? Yeah, because I think that for whatever reason, we think that AI and machine learning is sort of different than computers, right? If Apple, like, if if Apple doesn't ban sales of their computers to ExxonMobil and the oil companies, does that make you outraged, right? But but those are those are tools by which those companies become more productive and by which they actually like become more efficient at getting oil out of the ground. You should be outraged, 
right? But if, you know, Amazon Web Services or Google says, well, we're going to like sell you services to organize your information in ways that allows you to make better decisions in the future, then everyone's outraged. I just feel like these companies are in the pickaxe and shovel business, right? Like they're not actually mining for gold. They sell pickaxes and shovels and blue jeans to the people who mine for gold. And they make billions of dollars doing that. And I'm not surprised when they sell whatever their core product is to people who want to buy their core product. Again, I share this feeling that we shouldn't be outraged all the time and that we need to direct our outrage to the most productive areas. But but let me just take the other side of this. Let's look at it another way, right? If these companies were doing the same thing for a product that we knew clearly caused cancer in hundreds of millions of people, that they were supplying all these services and inking all these major contracts, would we let it play off like it was the normal course of business? I don't think so. And I do think we'll get to a point, I have no idea when, when that kind of standard will be applied to these companies. I doubt it. I mean, so if if right now, if Google provided services to Juul or Altria, which which do provide, do, do cause cancer, I don't think anyone cares. Right. I, and that's what I'm saying. Like, I just think the notion, like everyone's going to be Patagonia and say, you have to go through this group who has to approve you or else you can't have our vest. That's not going to happen. The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow has more than 87 gigawatts of inverters deployed across the globe. It's growing rapidly in the U.S., and it's working with some of the largest companies on the cutting edge of renewable energy development and procurement. Speaking of tech companies, uh, kind of a murky situation for tech companies, but many of them are going out into the market and buying tons and tons of renewable energy to power their headquarters and their data centers. And Apple is doing that. Apple invested in this 251 megawatt facility in Boulder, Nevada, and it was built by Swinterton Renewables using SunGrow inverters and trackers from NextTracker and cutting-edge bifacial modules. Five megawatts is going to be available for NV Energy customers as well so they can take part in the project. SunGrow is working on bifacial projects, but it's not just innovating there. It's also heavily invested in energy storage with inverters integrated into more than 200 megawatt hours of battery projects across the U.S. Find out more at sungrowpower.com. As promised, this month, Trump officially started the process to withdraw America from the Paris Global Climate Treaty. We knew this was coming, but it's a despicable abdication of U.S. leadership. And it's still kind of a shock that we're in this moment when a country of our stature and influence is walking away from one of the most important diplomatic efforts of our time. Um, So, Catherine, what happens now logistically as this process to retreat from the Paris uh, Treaty gets underway? Yeah, so logistically... Uh, Very fortunately, the agreement was crafted such that it is very easy to get back in. So if the president were to change to someone who believes in being in the Paris Accord, they could simply, the first day they're in office, say, we want back in, send a letter, and we're in. It's much harder. It takes a lot longer to get out. And part of that is because it is, it is non-binding. It's all voluntary. What is binding is that we are part of 
the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, UNFCCC. And that Congress ratified, um, it was under George H.W. Bush, it was ratified in Congress by a voice vote. That is what is binding. And so by stepping out of Paris, we're still not stepping back from that because Paris was not binding. But what it does mean is unfortunately a couple of things. One is that we are ceding leadership we're ceding the ability to see what's going on, to to hold other countries accountable for their emissions, to ha- have transparency and tracking tools in place. So it puts us at a huge disadvantage from that perspective. And we're not completely sure. I talked to someone who is really involved in these negotiations, how the diplomatic piece is going to work out because it is not binding. The retribution from other countries, which has been hinted at, is really could come from in the form of trade sanctions. So there are some trade options that other countries could put on us to prevent, like they did in Brazil about the Amazon fires, which countries did, and made them change their behavior. They, Other countries could do this to us. We don't know if that will happen. But as far as the, the treaty itself, we the, the Paris Accord, we can get back in at any point very easily. That's why I think this story matters, hence my strong language in the introduction. It's not about the goals of the treaty. I mean, of course it is about the goals, but it's about the diplomatic efforts involved and the U.S. walking away from this important fabric of diplomacy that now guides all geopolitics. I mean, climate negotiations are a part of all kinds of diplomacy now. And so walking away from this causes all kinds of consequences in your relationships with other countries. Yeah. And remember, the U.S. has been a really constructive presence even during this administration. So State Department, National Security Council, those folks are have been continuing to negotiate the rule book around Paris, whether or not you know they believe in all the tenets of it. The people who have been on the other side of this have been those right wing think tanks, you know, Conservative Enterprise Institute, Pruitt, when he was at EPA, those were the folks who were getting Trump to bring it down, not the folks who are actually in the room negotiating. Jigger, what are the the diplomatic consequences of this withdrawal? Well, it hurts U.S. companies, right? I mean, the biggest problem with this always has been that U.S. companies are the ones going around the world pushing climate solutions, right? So whether it's solar and wind companies or in the future, small modular reactors or you know, hydro or whatever technology we're pushing. In general, U.S. companies are far smarter than European companies at doing uh, project finance in many of these markets. And using OPIC and Exim Bank and others, you know, are better tools than some of the tools that the Europeans have. And so you're in a situation now where you're you're going to these governments saying we're better than everyone else at providing the service to you, and here's all of the benefits that we have. And then people look at you funny and say, but you guys went out of the Paris Agreement, right? And you're like, well, that wasn't me. That was my government and it wasn't my fault. But, you know, I still have a solution I want to sell to you. And then when you go to the State Department and you go to the the embassy and say, hey, are you going to help me with this? They might help you because you're a company that's American, but they might not help you. They might be like, well, we don't really do junkets for you know, climate change companies. And we don't really like have, you know, these sort of education seminars every month like the German embassy does or the UK embassy does around promoting their climate companies, right? And this is 
this turns out to be the challenge is, is that in all these small ways, American companies have a much larger hurdle to climb. Yeah, and our diplomats will have less juice as a result. What about political reactions within the U.S.? Is there any price to be paid politically for Trump, Catherine? I feel like that's almost like a silly question to, <laughs> to be asking at this point because there appears to be no political price. But like, uh, you know, in the general election, let's say, does this weigh on voters' minds in any way at all? Well, I think climate does. So we'll see what happens in the election, right? I mean, I think we're seeing on state and local elections that um, climate change makes a difference. And so if you noted the the whole this next iteration of press around pulling out of Paris was pretty small for the president. It was not a great press day for him. So I I don't think it's helpful from a diplomatic point of view, from as Jigger said, from an economic point of view. And I think politically, we'll see. I think politically, it's going to be quite damaging for him, right? Because think about it, like, like the the official date that we get out of Paris is the day after the election, right? So you can imagine the rallying cry. If you're somebody who cares deeply about climate, which many, many people who are first-time voters um, in this election are going to be, um, you know, it's pretty easy to say, hey, vote tomorrow, because if you don't, we're getting out of the Paris Agreement the next day, right? And, you know, and whether or not it's true that, you know, the next president-elect can, can you know, stop that from happening, they probably can't. We'll probably complete the process and then go back in. But I think it's going to be a huge rallying cry for, you know, 18-year-olds who are voting for the first time. What happens if a Democrat wins, Catherine, uh, and the U.S. comes groveling back to the international community, has to put together its plan of action once again? First of all, what happens logistically? And second of all, will the international community welcome us with open arms? So, uh, first of all, logistically, it's much easier to get back in than to go out. So they could just send a letter to the UN and say, we're back in, we'd like to get back in and start negotiations again. Remember, there still are um, career staff who are part of these negotiations that have always been there. So they're they're not politicals at all. So there has been some communication anyway on the ground. So I don't think that it's that we just have been completely absent. I think also people globally see President Trump as really different from any other president that we've had. So while they may have somewhat less trust in the American political system, I think they will know that Trump was very different from other presidents. And you know, we'll probably be really glad if the U.S. steps back up, because as Jigger says, we offer so many solutions in so many different ways, not just technology, but also financing. Yeah, I don't. And by the way, I think I don't think the U.S. gravels to anything. Right. I think we're going to come to the table and I think our seat will be sitting there and it'll be warmed up. What happens if Trump wins then is the final question. What What is the scenario for global progress or lack thereof? Does it carry on? Do we have more bilateral negotiations? Do people, you know, turn their shoulders and say, oh, the U.S. is doing enough internally? Do things get seriously derailed? Like, what what happens if we have another four years of a Trump presidency? Well, under the Obama presidency, we lost, the Democrats lost over a thousand seats, right, in state legislatures and governorships. I mean, I think, I think at the end of Obama's administration, there were like 37 or 36 
Republican governors. And so today it's back to like 25-25 and you've got a lot of legislatures have gone this way. I think one in four Americans now live in states that have mandated 100% clean energy and, you know, probably one in three in places where the utilities have also um, gone that way or the cities. So I think that, you know, from the perspective of action, there has been more action today than there ever has been. And that's largely because of a revolt against Trump and his rhetoric and his policies. And so, I mean, most of the clean energy businesses I know of are doing better today than they were three years ago. Yeah, I I fear that if Trump is uh, elected again, for numerous reasons, but one of the things is that I think the bilaterals are actually going to be harder to do because I think countries are not going to feel that they want to come to the table and deal with us on clean energy or trade if we're not in the agreement. So I think that's when we would see some trade retribution. Finally, back to California once again. In the wake of the wildfires, Google searches and sales of generators have surged. But what about solar and batteries? What about, uh, you know, microgrids? You wouldn't necessarily Google search for a product for microgrids. But uh, homeowners are searching for other options along with traditional like diesel generators. According to Energy Sage, this uh, comparison platform for solar and storage quotes they are a very big platform. There's been a major surge in interest in the technology. They saw this crazy shoot up in the number of quotes that they were delivering on the platform in California. And according to Vivint Solar's CEO, that is resetting the California market. California has, of course, slowed in recent years because of market saturation, but that may be reversing. So what will be the business outcome for distributed generation like solar and batteries and maybe mixed microgrids on the commercial side in California? Jigger, you you penned this op-ed with Timothy Haidt of Scale Microgrid Solutions in the Sacramento Bee. What were you arguing with regard to the role of distributed generation as a tool in California's disaster preparation kit? Well, in general, I think what we're arguing is that their people are going to decide to fix this problem for themselves, right? And it's not something where you're going to just tolerate $2.5 billion worth of losses in economic output and sit around and say, I hope PG&E solves the problem. There are people buying diesel generators. There are people buying natural gas generators, right? And what we were saying is that there needs to be a more systematic approach to giving people alternatives to the current grid infrastructure, right? And so that if people wanted to get uh, a microgrid or people wanted to use, um, uh, you know, solar plus storage using virtual net metering or some of these other programs, that there was actually a sort of streamlining of the process by which we can get there. Because I think that the the challenge we have right now is that all of these solutions are actually quite difficult to get done, right? And the utility companies are completely backlogged in terms of interconnection. So if you really want to have a solution in place by next August when, you know, wildfire season starts again, good luck. You know, like with the current rules, you're not really on track to to be able to get that done in time. And so it does require California, I think, to be more proactive around enacting policies and incentives that sort of leverage the state's, you know, uh, innovation to get it out in the marketplace faster. Yeah, there's some real regulatory barriers for distributed energy resources, like just the whole wholesale and retail price signals not being aligned, that um, 
the resource adequacy construct that they have out there doesn't really give value for aggregated hybrid resources on the edge of the grid, that um, energy storage behind the meter is at a real disadvantage, and uh, that that the ability to, to do microgrids and island is is really should be able to be much easier, more easily done. So I think if the CPUC and, and Jigger and I had a conversation with them yesterday, they were really open to new ideas. I think it's almost like we got to get out of the them to get out of the way and provide much more ease of entry for all of these different solutions. So how big is the fire bump for solar and batteries? Are we going to see a whole new stage of market growth? It, obviously, we have to wait to see Q4 numbers and then probably Q1 numbers to determine how lasting this reaction will be. But Jigger, do you think that we'll see a significant fire bump in those technologies? Well, you have to define significant, right? I mean, I think as a percentage terms, sure. In terms of actually their sales, um, not really, not yet, right? I mean, I think that as this moves forward, I think you're going to see more. It's really more about the solar companies re-engaging in marketing. The solar companies have really retreated heavily on the marketing side after Solar City was purchased by Tesla. And I think what you heard from Vivint CEO and others is that Literally every door they've knocked on in the past is now a fresh door to go knock on again. And it'll be interesting to see how much money they put into advertising because, you know, for sure, Generac stock price went up by like 8% um, when the first public safety shutoff occurred because a lot of people Googled backup generator and bought a Generac. Yeah, so in the vein of sales, Jigger, another thing I think about is all these communities that need to have systems put in to help them weather some of these events. And there is money through FEMA, there are grant funds, it's not enough, but I think we need to boost those, but also give some way for communities to connect with those solutions and service providers, because they don't know where to go. And just, you know, as we talk with Tim Haid about like where he wants to deploy, it's like, these communities have no idea where the resources are for them to go and try to build and and to pay down the cost of financing for getting microgrids. Yeah, and that's Tim Hayde at Scale Microgrid. I, you know, what I would say is I think that again, this is where the CPUC and the state of California I think have to show more leadership and be able to like disseminate information directly to elected officials, but. Certainly, Schneider Electric and some of these really big companies, Siemens and others, are going to towns now directly. I was talking to the governor's office a few weeks ago, and this is before the public safety shutoff started. And um, they said, well, we're not hearing a lot about microgrids from these towns. Well, more recently, when I talked to them, they said, uh, yeah, they are demanding microgrids now. So I do think that there's been a huge political shift. And um, I think it would be in the state's best interest to educate the elected officials. But if they don't step up, I think you're going to see a lot of these big brand microgrid companies like Schneider do it. So where's the best business opportunity then? Is it going to be a stand-in, some kind of alternative stand-in for natural gas or diesel generators? Or is it just going to be natural gas and diesel generators? Or is it going to be some kind of community or corporate solution with tying these technologies together in a microgrid? Well, it's all of the above. I mean, in general, I'd say that if you're purely just interested in making a million dollars, then it's going door to door and, you know, getting customers to buy solutions that are way too expensive. I think if you're really trying to figure out how to solve this problem systemically, 
then I think it's a lot of work with mayors and city council members and CCAs. I mean, the CCAs have been noticeably absent in all of this, and it's actually a real um, black mark, I think, on them around um, whether they're actually capable of rising to the occasion. Um, you know, when, when a lot of these folks have questions, I don't know that their CCAs are the right place to go to get answers, and that's a problem. Um, their CCAs should be more prosumer and should have a stable of solutions providers that they've pre-vetted, ready to go, and said, here are the folks that we know are going to negotiate, are going to give you a fair price, are not going to gouge you, and are going to, you know, provide you good customer service. Yeah, and I think, Stephen, big box stores, grocery stores, hospitals are going to step up and put in their own systems and become uh, much more community-oriented. But I would very much like to see more community solar, community storage be thought of much more holistically and intentionally, as Jigger says. Let's offer up our free electrons now to close out the show. Catherine, hand it over. What do you got? Yeah, so elections matter, as we have said a few times. And I've lived in the Commonwealth of Virginia my entire life, except when I went to college. And I'm super excited because now we have a General Assembly that will be aligned with our governor on climate change and clean energy. So Hopefully, Virginia will now get get into the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative that will be able to actually put teeth onto an executive order that was penned earlier this year, but maybe even go beyond that. So the executive order said 30% renewables by 2030. Well, we could probably do better than that. We could probably lower greenhouse gases by 60% by 2030 and lower rates, um, hoping to see removal of solar cap, some of the structural barriers that are in place right now in Virginia removed. Um, Also, the General Assembly is in charge of appointing the State Corporation Commission that governs the utilities. And not only are there too few members on that commission, so there are only three, and we should probably get up to about five, but they also have very little actual jurisdiction over the utilities. So give them some more authority to make really smart decisions. Um, Jigger had some good ideas for this he put out on Twitter. Praveen Kathpal had some good ideas. There's a lot going on out there and, and really good ideas, and I hope we'll finally be able to enact them and I can get solar on my home. Well, for our non-American listeners... Uh, can you just remind people wh- why Virginia's uh, local politics flipped and um, and why that matters historically? Yeah, so for about 50 years, uh, the Virginia General Assembly has been run by the Republican Party and has been very gerrymandered. And amazingly, uh, the, the state has changed not just the the towns and cities, which have for the most part been democratic, but the the burbs now are becoming much more blue. It flipped both chambers of the General Assembly. And I think that's going to have implications for a lot of issues, not just climate. It'll have implications for gun control and other topics because we'll now be able to, when the 2020 census is done, um, probably reverse some of that gerrymandering and make it just a more democratic state with a small d. Yeah. No, it's pretty amazing. I will say, though, that like the people who got elected as Speaker of the House are the ones who didn't sign the No Dominion Money Pledge. Hey, you can only do so much. <laughs> it is Virginia, after all. <laughs> we do call it the Dominion State for a reason. Jigger, what's your free electron this week? So about 10 years ago, I met a guy named David Keith, who has been spending a lot of time on carbon capture. And, you know, he has... Harvard, right? Moved, yeah, he moved from Calgary to um, to Harvard 
a few years ago. And he's just one of the smartest guys uh, I know in this area. He was very anti-solar wind for a while, but he's come around on how cost-effective we are. And now what he's showing is that actually really low-cost uh, variable solar and wind power um, you know, creating hydrogen um, is actually very cost-effective to create um, jet fuel and other fuels. And so he's now uh, proving that you can actually uh, uh, do that very cost-effectively now that renewable energy is below two cents a kilowatt hour in most places. And um, and he gave a nice 12-minute talk at the Royal Society. So you should look up David Keith on YouTube. It's a great talk. You should indeed. He's got a bunch of great talks, really smart guy. Many years back, I don't know, it was two years ago, he penned an op-ed for Green Tech Media, or I think maybe we cross-posted a piece that he had already written for his website at Harvard um, about why he was reevaluating his skepticism about solar and wind. And he's just a very thoughtful guy. Um, uh, my, my free electron is about a Twitter thread from Daniel Finn Foley, who's the head of storage at Wood Mackenzie Power and Renewables. Anybody who knows Daniel knows that he is just a man full of puns and joy, and uh, he's always got something funny to say um, in, in the best way possible. He wrote this great Twitter thread about um, the Democratic presidential primaries, and he took every challenger and made them into an electricity generation or generation-adjacent technology. And so I'll just give you a few of them. I thought they were quite funny. He calls Joe Biden natural gas. Been around for decades, but finally took off in the late aughts. Look, natural gas, we appreciate it. We really do. You were a big part of the transition from the old to the new, and we're grateful, but it's clear now that people want to focus on the future. Uh, Pete Buttigieg, (laughs) carbon capture and sequestration. The hot new thing you keep hearing about because the media is pushing it so hard seems like a great idea until you look into who's funding it and why, and and then the illusion kind of crumbles. John Delaney, a potato, (laughs) self-explanatory. And then let's see, let's go to Elizabeth Warren. Where is she? Um, Elizabeth Warren, energy storage has a plan to solve literally every one of your problems. But all you will ever hear is, yeah, but is it viable? Or sure, but how much will it cost? <laughs> Desperately trying to explain how much solutions will pay for themselves. So That good. was spot so on. Good. That was so yeah, good. Yeah, that was the best those, one. Some of those were amazing. Although the last one, Michael Bloomberg, calling Michael Bloomberg coal, as we all discussed, was not spot on. Yeah, I think Michael Bloomberg should have been smart city technology, right? Promises to collect data to solve every problem a city faces (laughs) from EV charging to air quality. But for now, it just prints money using new billboard advertising space on public sidewalks. Oh, my God, that's good. Oh, yeah. Did you just come up with that just now? Mm-hmm. That's pretty, that's Yeah, clever. that's awesome. That would That's a good one. Let's replace it. <laughs> <laughs> and that is where we end things, folks. Despite its many flaws, we are all on Twitter, so please send your commentary there. Disagreements with us, quibbles, backslaps, congratulations, whatever's on your mind. We, we love to hear any thoughts, uh, certainly if you disagree with us, but just keep it civil, you know? Uh, send this on to a friend or colleague if you think they'd like the show. Word of mouth is a pretty significant driver of audience growth for us, so if you have someone in your life or your work life who you think should listen to this show, then please send it their way. 
As always, go to Green Tech Media for all your business news on the clean energy transition. It's greentechmedia.com slash newsletters. That's where you can sign up for news in your inbox each morning. And we've got links to other resources uh, from this show that we discussed in our show notes. My co-hosts are Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. The show is produced and edited by me and Daniel Waldorf. We are a co-production of Green Tech Media and PostScript Audio. Thank you for listening. Until next time.